Hi, this is Hatem from the Comedy Sellers Live from America podcast. If you are listening, please consider joining our YouTube channel as well, where you can watch the show, uh, short clips, and much, much more. Please go to uh, youtube.com backslash live from America podcast. And if you are watching, please don't forget to subscribe, like, and comment. We would love to hear from you. And here's today's episode. Enjoy. All right, here we go. Welcome to Live from America podcast. This is Hatem, along with Noam Dorman, the owner of the legendary Comedy Cellar. And today's show is one of the shows that I really look forward to. Like usually, I, sometimes I don't care. Uh, but this one, because there's two reasons. One of them is that one of the funniest comedians, in my opinion, ever. Yes, I said it, Mike, ever. Yes. You know, it's Mike Vecchione from The Tonight Show. And you see him. He's a great actor, too. You can see him in The uh, King of Staten Island. You kind of stole the show a little bit there, too. Thank you for having me, and thank you for your uh, compliments. I it's, appreciate it's, it. It's based on a true story. Thank you, buddy. And one of our best guests before he's returned, finally. I tried to get him for years <laughs> and years and years, but he's busy, and you can understand why. Uh, Ellie Hunning, he is a uh, former New Jersey federal prosecutor and CNN legal analyst. And he's very, very, he was very, very, very busy with the mob. And we're going to discuss so, I was in the old days, and Hatam Noam, I know you guys, good to see you again. Mike, let me just give you a quick couple compliments, if I could. Uh, I, I happened to have seen um, King of Staten Island a couple, two nights ago, and it was great. And, you know, that I think that's the kind of movie that you're going to, you know, you'll, you'll always have the fact that you're in that. That's going to be like a dazed and confused type movie, I think, that everyone's in it who is going to always take pride in it. But bigger compliment, I just drove down about an hour each way to see my mom, and um, I played your stuff. I said, let me, let me hear this stuff. I have a 15-year-old son and a 13-year-old daughter. All three of us laughing our ass off. We ended up listening to like five of your clips on YouTube. Really good stuff. It was awesome to hear it. So uh, good to meet you. It's awesome. It's great to meet you too. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. You looked up Mike Vecchione with a K, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, can I tell you, can I tell you something, that made me la- something that made me laugh though about Mike, Mike Vecchione's website? In his bio, it says, Mike is an Italian-American comedian. It's like, no shit. Like, Mike <laughs> is an Italian-American comedian. It's like yeah. me saying, Ellie, Ellie is a Jewish-American lawyer. Like, of course. Like me saying I'm Middle Eastern. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I can't wait for this show. So we're going to talk about the mob. No, where is your guitar? You mean the mandolin? Yeah. Uh, I don't have it here. <laughs> so, so um, Ellie, how did you... Um, no, we need a, a little feedback. How did you start, you know, uh, how did you get into the world of mob prosecution? And, you know, how did that start? Oh, there we go. There go. No, no one's got the, uh, the mood music. And the background is working. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I was a federal prosecutor in Manhattan at the Southern District of New York. And when you are there, you have to, your first two years, you have to go through the general crimes unit, which is like your freshman dorm kind of thing. Then you go through narcotics. And then after year two, you have a big decision, which is which of the six or seven senior units do you want to go to? There's securities, there's terrorism, there's, there's uh, street gangs, there's public corruption, organized crime. I wanted to go into organized crime. Really, 
for no better reason than I thought it was cool. I love the movies. I love Goodfellas. I love Godfather Sopranos was right in, right in the heart of Sopranos at the time. And I just thought, gosh, who gets to ever do this? You know, who gets to really meet these guys and work with them and deal with them? And I spent the next six years at the SDNY there. I became chief of organized crime. I tried a bunch of cases that we'll talk about against bosses, John Gotti Jr., um, you know, murder convictions. Some I actually won, not John Gotti Jr., but some we actually convicted um, and ended up having this crazy career there where to this day, I still, well, we'll talk about this, but I'm, I'm, I've recorded my own podcast um, called Up Against the Mob, which is coming out through Cafe, which is Preet Bharara's network, if you guys know Preet. Um, it's coming out probably in a couple months, but I do episodes with, the first episode I think we're going to release, I do with a cooperator of mine, a guy named Mike Visconti, who was about to get made in the Genovese family, tough guy, smart guy, and he flipped for us, and he testified in a whole bunch of trials we did. And I talked to him now years later about how do you feel? Are you glad you cooperated? What was it like? How'd you explain this to your kids? Um, so I still have these relationships to this, to this day with some of these guys. In fact, I even have a little bit of a weird relationship with John Gotti Jr., who I tried and we didn't convict him. The jury hung. And he has sort of written things about me positively in his book. And um, we stayed in touch through an intermediary and I'm trying to get him to do my podcast. So that would be something to sit down with him a few years later. But um, I wanted to do it for the stories. And I think I came out with exactly that. Ellie, did you, did you try him? He got tried three times, correct? Did you try four, four times? <laughs> four and I was number four. Here's, here's why I have a built-in excuse for losing this case. So he was tried three times, but when I was a new kid in the office, I had nothing to do with that. Three times, the jury hung every time meaning no conviction, no, they weren't unanimous either way, so the office threw the case out. Fast forward about four years to 2008, 2009, Florida, federal prosecutors in Florida flip a guy named John A. Light, right. who was John Gotti's sidekick, I guess, but a psycho. I mean, we can talk about, John A. Light shot so many people that when we were trying to go through it, he couldn't remember them all, so we had to estimate it at 30-ish. Wow. Now, his thing was he shot low. He shot people in the ass and the legs to send a message. He killed three, but he didn't kill 30. But he was a maniac and he flipped and then Florida indicted John Gotti Jr. And Jr. got the case kicked back up to Manhattan where I was. And now by this point, I'm chief of OC. So I got to do the case. And we, I ended up doing the fourth trial. And really the main reason the jury wouldn't convict, they were six, six, six wanted to convict, six did not. But we talked to the jury afterwards and they were the, the six who did not want to convict were like, you can't try a guy four times. That's not fair. And right. I get that. I respect that. I think that's a fair, fair conclusion. Uh, I listened to John Elite's podcast. Yeah. He was saying that before he flipped, the reason he flipped is that Gotti came in and did a 302 with you guys, yep. like a proffer, like a queen of the day. Yep. He found out about it, and that's why he flipped. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, well, so there is some truth to that. So John Gotti Jr. did come in for a proffer, right, which is Jr. Will, will deny this or say he was just trying to play us, but – that is what you do when you're trying to cooperate. Now, this wasn't me. This was the more senior folks, but I've read that 302. I know those folks. He came in to try to cooperate, but he lied his ass off. He minimized. He had some people he wanted to give up, some people he didn't want to give up, right? This, the, a game player type of cooperator, not right. the good kind. And it didn't work out, and he ended up going through with his trial. A-Light, though, A-Light wanted it, to cooperate. Because you guys were threatening, is it, not you, but yeah. the, uh, the prosecutors were threatening to put him on the stand, and he was like, I'm not getting on the stand. Because a later Gotti. Very public then. A later Junior, Mike. Junior, Junior. Because because at the end of it, all this, yeah. is, like, it's like, uh, we want you to, you know, 
we want you to testify. And he, from what right. I was like, he was like, no, I'm not getting on the stand. Well, this so he, they can't, no, they, that doesn't work because you can't force a defendant on the stand. They have, that's what the Fifth Amendment right is. So they couldn't force him on the stand. I guess they could try to put him in a grand jury. I mean, look, Junior, the fact of the matter is Junior flirted with cooperating. That's, there's no way around that. He came right. in for a proffer, which is a no-no in the mob. I mean, you don't come in and sit down with me. That's, you know, people get hurt for that. Right. He did do that. That's a matter. I'm not. That's a matter of public record. He didn't come fully clean. There were probably threats, like what you're talking about, Mike. Oh, we'll, we'll we'll force you to testify in the grand jury and all that. But bottom line, Junior did not cooperate. A light did. I mean, A light was looking at murder charges. A light was in Brazilian prison. Right. You probably heard him talk about this. He got tortured. Yeah. He got his teeth knocked out. Um, a light, but A light was looking at a life sentence. I mean, A light was going to get killed. No, you know, A light was going to get convicted on these murder cases. I mean, A light was a henchman and he did a lot of murders and a lot of bad things. So look, A-Light flipped the same reason almost everybody flips, which is to save his own ass. And there's no question about that. Um, and so, I don't fault him for that. So before we used to hear that if you if you flip or if you give any information or whatever, you just get killed. Now we see mob yeah. bosses and big people in the mob doing podcasts, doing TV shows, <laughs> doing documentary. Yeah. Is that true? Are these people really are... <laughs> You know what? What's going on in the mob? Like, yeah, that has that's that's something that's really changed, Satan. Because it used to be if you were even suspect, I did murder cases where they just thought somebody might be talking to the cops and they killed the guy. I did one case. In fact, he was killed in Staten Island. A guy named Frank Heidel, who was okay. So let me just think back. So Heidel was. They believed he was talking to the FBI, and he was. And that's a matter of public record. But they somehow got wind of it. This is in the '90s, I want to say, and they lured him to a strip club in Staten Island. And I want to, is Scarlet's? Is that a, not that you guys would know, but what, is there, or was there a strip club called Scarlet's in Staten Island? Nom, nom. <laughs> go ahead, nom. Of course there is. Okay, so there you go. So his best friends, and this is what's so chilling to me about the mob, right? The guy who's going to kill you is going to be your best friend, right? I used to have a cooperator, Mikey DeLeonardo, Mikey Scars, who used to say, the last guy you're going to see is your best friend. Yeah, yeah. And so, so Heidel, and the, here's, there's two chilling things about this case. One is Heidel's uncle was a guy named Danny Marino, not the Dolphins quarterback, you yeah. know, the mobster That's Danny Marino, crap. scary, super powerful guy. I think he's still alive. He's probably in his late eighties by now. I ended up charging him in this case. And Dan Marino had to approve this murder. You can't, you can't kill Dan Marino's nephew without his go ahead or you'll get killed. So they had to send word into Dan Marino who was in prison at the time. And he basically said, you sure the kid's ratting? And they were like, yep. And he's like, do what you got to do. And then his, Heidel's two best friends, Eddie Boyle, and who the hell was the other? John Matera, I think, lured him out. They took it. Imagine doing this. Imagine you know that your best friend, your third guy in your group, think of you and your two best friends, and you know that the third one's got to get killed, and you're in on it, and you're going to take him out to Scarlet Strip Club. You're going to buy him a beer, and you know that he's dead in the parking lot. Actually, you that's that why we brought Mike here in this podcast. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's a little harder by Zoom, but yeah, Mike, there's a guy going to be knocking on your door soon. Um, Mike, I'm sorry. <laughs> but they, they, they had a drink, and one of them went over to a payphone and made a call, like, okay, you know, I don't, whatever he said, the guy's here. And they walked him out to the parking lot, and Eddie Boyle ran up, boom, popped him right in the parking lot right that's, there. That's the one thing I don't, I, like, it's in every movie. Why do they have to always make a phone call? Like, why can't they get it, like, right before? In every scene in the mob, they have to be a phone call before. Yeah, well, that was in the payphone days. They did that one from a payphone. Yeah, it's a, it's, a good, it's a good thought. We've made a lot of cases by just, like, look at the phone call. Like, who got called right before? You know, they all have burners, and they all have... Uh, Paulie hated phones. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, they used, and then you know they they adapt. They use all the untraceable crap, the WhatsApp, and the you know what the stuff that disappears off your phone. I'm blanking on the name. Telegram. Yeah, uh, whatever. Ash or something. Ash or so. Yeah. So they used to kill people just on suspicion of this, but you guys are right. Now it's there's much less killing now. I mean, the last mob murder that I think everyone agrees was definitely a mob hit was really in 08. I'm not counting the Gambino boss who was killed a couple of years ago by that sort of lone wolf psycho guy. I think also in Staten Island, right? Who shot him at the yes. diner. Yes. That was a that was a maniac. That wasn't sanctioned. But I think the last sanctioned hit that the FBI and prosecutors generally agree was in 08. And I, I tried that one, or we got a guy to plead to that one too. But it, the reason why- Was it the why, Michael Meldish? Is that what you're talking about? I know Michael Meldish. Um, I'm thinking of the murder of- uh, uh, Todd LaBarca pled guilty to the murder of Marty Bosshart was the name of the guy they killed. Okay. But Meldish is a, is a bad guy from, from the Bronx who I convicted Angelo Prisco, who was Meldish's captain in the Purple Gang, which is the Genovese guys who right. used, they were crazy, used crazy. to deal heroin and everything crazy. in the Bronx. But a lot right? of them were half Irish. That's why they could never get made. So oh, okay. Gang, right? And they were supposed to be like the sixth family, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right. I mean, they're, they're sort of, you know, they align with different of the mob right. families. But the reason, you know, you may be asking, like, why, why are they killing less? The answer is it's bad business. It just doesn't make sense for them because, like, the way you draw heat from us, from prosecutors, from cops is murders, right? Like, right. look, we can charge you. We charge these guys with extortions, loan sharking, racketeering. They kind of go, whatever, fine. We'll take our pleas. We'll do our two and a half years standing on our head. But when you charge guys with murders, that's when the Michael D. Leonardo's flip. That's when the John A. Lights flip. Yeah. That's when the, all these, you know, and that. And so you better have a damn good reason. And you can really... You know, you can really send a message a lot of ways short of murdering yeah. a guy. So we had a couple of guys. Yeah, you, I, you know, you can do is just you could just bring his brother to the courtroom, and uh, <laughs> that's a Godfather joke. Oh. Blood, is, blood, is, blood is a big expense. Now, can I ask you a quick question? Just going back to something uh, because I can't remember in a, in a federal criminal trial, the verdict has to be unanimous. Yes. If it's a majority to convict, but there's a one juror that doesn't go along, that's a that's a hung no jury. No good. No that, good. The the first John Gotti Jr. trial was eleven to convict, one to acquit. That's a hung jury. Eleven to one the, is the same as six six is the same as eight four. Does the acquittal have to be unanimous? Yes, twelve zero. I had a case. I did a case against the Genovese guy, Ciro Perone. The first trial we lost. Two to ten. We had two jurors that wanted to convict and ten wanted to acquit. That's a mistrial. We retried him six months later and convicted him. All is that is that the same in uh, state? Is that that yeah. typical? Same in trials? same virtually everywhere. Same in New York State. Same in New Jersey State. There, there are a couple states. I want to say like Oregon or something that may have experimented with non-unanimous juries where you can have one person, you know, on the other side, but. It's almost always going to be unanimous, definitely in the federal system. I would think, given there's a presumption of innocence, that it would make sense that you have to be unanimous to be convicted. But if a majority is for acquittal, that would be an acquittal. Like I'd be, yeah, it's not the way it works, though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The next question is: Aren't aren't you worried ever for your personal safety when you (laughs) when you when you lock somebody up? You know. So just to add to that, who's who's the most dangerous person that you? So that's not adding to that. That's changing the subject. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's a, but look, it's a good question. The fact of the matter is I never had a serious threat from mob guys for the same reason I just said. It's bad business. Like, look, if the rule was if you kill the prosecutor, the case goes away, I'd be dead 20 times, right? But it's not. I mean, God forbid if anyone tried to do anything to me when I was a prosecutor, guess what? There's 150 more of me. They would right. plug in the next guy and all holy hell would rain down on you from the entire FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office and you name it. 
So it's just not good business. But I will say that, I don't know if it's funny, but the thing is, now that I do CNN, I get way more death death threats. <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, all the time. Oh, so, uh, you know, lay off Trump, would you, Ellie, lay off Trump. <laughs> Draw your own conclusions. Are we going to talk about Trump and this stuff today? Later. I don't know. He's a lame. Now. He's a lame duck. No, do we need to? No, I want to hear all about the you know the legal. No, we're talking about the mob. Hey, um, Ellie, can I tell yeah. you that there's a mob prosecutor? I don't know if you know out of Brooklyn. He's retired now, but his name is Mike Vecchione. You know, I felt like I knew that name for. Yeah. I feel like there's also been mob guys named Vecchione, like Robert yeah. Vecchione. Something like that. I don't know about the mob guys, but I've actually talked to the former prosecutor. Is that right? Books out, Mike Vecchione, because he that saw my funny. name posted. <laughs> I ended up having a conversation. We we're supposed to have dinner before this pandemic started, because that's all I need. I need to be assassinated because right. a mobster thinks that I'm the Mike Vecchione. <laughs> right, exactly. Now, don't worry. They, they don't mess with prosecutors. That's bad business. Stand-ups is another thing, though. They have a thing with stand-ups, so be careful. <laughs> now, so, where are the Jews, uh, the Jewish, where's the Jewish mob these days? You are know we what? out of the business? Oh, no, can I, can I brag for a second? I think I prosecuted the last Jewish gangster a guy named Julius Spike Bernstein, all right? And this guy was like old school, tough guy, Genevieve's family. And we prosecuted him. He was one of the first cases I ever did. He was basically controlling the bus drivers union, 1180, local 1181 out on, uh, I guess it was in Queens. And he was, he didn't, we didn't have him on violent crimes, but we had him on a bunch of extortions and embezzlements and that kind of thing. But Spike Bernstein was like the last badass Jewish gangster. He died since. But um, yeah, so I, I don't know of any new ones since then. So, so the, all of the information that we have about the mob is what we see in uh, TV and movies and stuff. Yeah. Is that, right. How true is that to the real life? You would so, so it's a great question. So one of the episodes we do on my podcast is I sit with two other prosecutors, former fellow prosecutors of mine, and we, we do a recap of Goodfellas, the movie. And we talk about what's real, what's not, you know, what they got right, what would never happen in real life. But I'll tell you my pick for the most accurate of the mob's stuff by far is The Sopranos. Um, and I'll tell you why, because it captures the grind of it, right? Because, you know, you see Goodfellas, you see Godfather, you see even Donnie Brasco, whatever. He, and, and you think of like the intensity of it and all you're really seeing there is the top guys, the bosses, the capos, the guys who are doing hits, the guys who are making money. But the reality is like any industry, it's filled with schlubs. It's filled with low lives. It's filled with guys scraping for a score. And the, when you watch Tony Soprano, who's a boss, but think about all the people around him. Think of all the, you know, all the bums in his crew who, who can't make a dollar or they can't keep a thing straight or they're disloyal. And that's what it's really like. like there's so many grinders out there who are living these lives of stress and unnecessary drama and can't make a buck. And they're all, you know, it's no different than life at a big corporation or a big law firm where you're trying to get ahead and, you know, you're, you're trying to cozy up to this guy and exclude that guy. And I think the Sopranos really captured that really well. And these guys, you know, they're real people. I mean, that's one of the things yeah. that always fascinated me about them. They're not just cool guys in, you know, in their, in their, you know, in their dressed up, you know, getting to sit in the front row of the Copacabana. Like, they right. live regular lives and they got to deal with the, the stresses of wives and kids and money and yeah. you know, parents and all that. So How does that Hollywood, Hollywood, Hollywood makes, um, makes the mob look so glamorous, right? They, they, they yeah. do the same thing for the mob that they do for marriage. They make it look so pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> what about the movie with Johnny Depp and Al Pacino? It's a fucking grind. 
And, and if you think about this, the Sopranos, right? Sopranos really does not make it look glamorous. I don't think you no. watch Sopranos and come out of it thinking, I think you, at the end of Goodfellas, I think you're thinking, man, I'd love, that's awesome. But I think at the end of Sopranos, you're like, that looks like a nightmare, right? right? The life they live. So, so no, but the, still chick, the chicks are hot. The chicks <laughs> we still are hot. have mob families now. And what's the story? Yeah. Mob so, so there's still the same five mob families. There's Gambino, Genovese, Lucchese, Colombo, Bonanno. And, you know, while it's not as big, well, none of them are as, as strong and powerful and scary as they once were, you literally, somebody literally has to die in order for somebody to get in. So the way it works is each of the five families has a set number of people. You can't just decide, okay, we're the Genovese family. We have 140 people, but let's expand. Let's go to 150. No, no, no. You have a set number of spots. And at the end of every year, they circulate these lists. And we've got a couple of them. We picked off a couple of them from search warrants or from cooperators where it'll say on the left-hand side, here's the six guys who died this year. And on the right-hand side, here's the six guys we want to replace them one for one like this. And then those lists get circulated to all the other families so they can go, uh, no on Vecchione, his dad was a cop. No on Dorman, um, he, you know, uh, he messed around with my sister, you know, whatever. So there's still intense competition to get in. I mean, there's dozens of guys angling and competing for every open spot. So they're still at full capacity. They're not any smaller than they were. They've just changed what they do. The most powerful one to me has always been the Genovese family, um, which we used to, I guess, joking, half jokingly call the Ivy League of the mob because they were the smartest, the hardest to flip guys out of, um, sort of the lowest profile, right? We got a great tape of Angelo Prisco, who I talked about before. Um, we, we wired up his driver one time and his driver taped Angelo for several months including one time when he had to drive Angelo for like two hours to down to Atlantic City. And Angelo just gave him mob 101. And at one point, Angelo, who's a Genovese guy, goes, fuck those Gambinos, fuck those Gottis. They're always talking. They're always in the media. He's like, they're always getting caught on tape talking. He's like, we don't talk on tape. No one catches us on tape. Anyway, he's getting taped. Uh, <laughs> so that was one of my favorite tapes ever. But I would say the Genovese is probably the strongest of the What five. about the Albanian mob? Yeah. yeah, dude, the Albanian mob is scary, man. So I did a Genovese case. In fact, Mike Visconti, the cooperator who I did the podcast episode with, their specialty was they would do home invasions, okay? But not just randomly. They would target, what do you guys think? What kind of people are they targeting for home invasions? Let's see how-, how Jews. <laughs> well, kind of Jews, kind of Jews, but not because they're Jews. Like I what? would say other mob guys, other people who are under illegal activities, who yeah, have a so ton of cash on hand or jewelry. Mike, oh, wow. Mike got it. So drug dealers um, and cash businesses, like a pizzeria owner who did cash. So they did, a, they did a, couple, a bunch of robberies where the, but the Genovese family didn't want to do it themselves because it's scary and dangerous to break into a home. So what did they do? They basically subcontracted those jobs to Albanians. And I flipped one of them, Dardian Salaj, Danny Salaj. And so what they would do is they targeted one case they did against like a sheet metal dealer from Jersey who they knew did cash business. And one of the jobs was Paul Tuttle. You guys know who that is? Orange County Choppers, the guy with the big Fu Manchu. Oh, no. You know oh, yeah, what I'm yeah, talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had a popular TV show Reality on Discovery show. where they like fixed up motorcycles. Yeah. Right. So they, they hit his house too because they heard that he was selling t-shirts at like motorcycle shows and keeping like shitloads of cash. Ellie, I want to ask you because, because this is- well, Oh, hold on. Real quick. The Albanians are scary and- the kid I flipped, Danny Salaj, came in and testified against the other Albanians and the mob guys. And Danny Salaj said, I'll never forget this. He told me about a time when like he got in a fight with like six Italians and he got beat up and he's, he's kind of fearless. And he goes, he goes, eh, 
you know, I'm fine. He goes, these Italians got no heart. He's like, they're second generation already, third generation. He's like, they got no heart. He's like, well, you know, the Albanians are like, we'll fight anyone. We don't care. He's like, they're, they're you know, I'll take eight of them. So the Albanians are for real. So you just, you just touched on something that something was, I was about to ask you, which is um, how can the mob continue to function in light of new technologies? Yeah. A, there is no more cash. B, inventory is, um, you know, the uh, bulletproof inventory systems now. Yeah. S surveillance cameras. You can't, like, no, nothing falls off trucks anymore, right? Like, right. Well, mm, very so, hard, so, very hard. Yeah. And cash, nobody has cash anymore. You can't no, even mug somebody for yeah. cash anymore. So here's the biggest thing that has happened technology-wise the last five, 10 years that has really hurt the mob. You guys want to guess? It's a very specific thing. Instagram. No, hey, you're, you're probably doing it today. You're probably doing it today. Podcast. No. Masturbation. <laughs> oh, oh, football. Sports gambling. Sports football. gambling. Right? Sports gambling. Yeah. yeah, because they used to make a fortune off doing books on, on sports gambling. But now you go on FanDuel, you go on whatever. You know, I don't want to give free plugs on your podcast, but you know, yeah. whoever it is, and it's all legal, more and more, it's legal here in Jersey. Um, and so they lost a lot of money that way. They still are taking some sports book because there's some kinds of bets that people can't you know like they want a place that the that the main houses won't take but for years that was their bread and butter they would do sports gambling and then if you couldn't pay they would turn it into a loan shark loan so right it'd be like okay Hatem, you owe me ten thousand for this week's game you don't have it i'll give you a loan for ten thousand but at two points meaning you're gonna owe me two hundred dollars interest every week and then they just grind you into it you know into, into a, a powder so they've lost that what are they doing now unions Unions are still a gold mine for them. If you control a union, you can get your family and friends a W-2. You can get them health and benefit. Look, even mobsters need dental, you know. Um, uh, they, they embezzle from the unions. Um, strip clubs are, I don't, I don't know about comedy clubs, but strip clubs, man. They, they've all got their hands in strip clubs. I did a trial with two, against two Gambino guys who were shaking down the, was it the 4040 Club or 2020 Club in Manhattan? Listen, I, I want to I call bullshit on something. But okay. that's Jay Z. The only thing that you pretend not to have memory at your fingertips is the name of strip clubs, all right? <laughs> <laughs> you remember right. every obscure name from 1955, but you can't remember the name. Of, I'm, I'm, that is funny. Shit, you know these that's, strip clubs as well as you know the rest of it. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> 4040, right? 4040. Jay Z, though. What was that club again? <laughs> hey, I said 4040 or 2020. I knew it was one of them. Um, they did the gold club. You you guys remember that trial where there yeah. was like Patrick Ewing and Ath this is before my time, but yeah. Michael DeLeonardo was convicted in that case before yeah. I ever had to do with my Michael took a, Michael took a, uh, uh, oh no, I'm sorry. Michael was acquitted. Michael beat that case in the nineties. They were calling sports stars down in Atlanta. And then Michael flipped later on, but, um, strip clubs, um, you know, here's the thing also, like, I don't know where you guys live, but there's still neighborhoods in Queens right. and Bronx where, you know, the butcher's got to pay you a little. The bar's got to pay you a little. You know, you, you got to go to the right guy to buy your fireworks. You got, you know, everything's still controlled and parceled out. But yeah. the business is changing. You're right. No, so, you know, so, so it's I mean, wait, hold, hold on. Yeah. So, so just, 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 you know, because I don't think I'm unique here. Oh, Our yeah. business over the last 20 years has gone from like 90% cash. Yeah. To very often we have to go take cash out of the bank in order to have to be able to pay tips right. and whatever the things that we need cash with zero it's basically zero cash now yeah and that's yeah. that represents most businesses in the economy yeah some small town 
bar in Queens, you know, that's still yep. using a, a punch register or whatever it is. But uh, I don't see how they can make the, the millions anymore. You're right. It's definitely it's definitely harder for them. Some of those businesses I talked about are still cash. But the the the, the golden ring for some, any mobster is to get a legitimate cover. And that's why the unions and the strip clubs are so vital because you can funnel your money through them and you can put it on the books with them and then pull it down out of that. That is sort of the golden aspiration of the best uh, this is, to get this, beyond this, the cash game. This has been one of the reasons I've been quite skeptical about Trump uh, going to jail after he gets out of the presidency is because there's no cash. Like, well, what could he have, <laughs> could he have done? He misvalued a property or something, you pay a penalty, but you need to, you need to find bags of cash Someone well, has to hide in order to go to jail. Nine times out of ten, you have to actually hide the existence of money. Not well. Let, not let me disagree. With the, yeah. Let me disagree yeah. a little bit. I think if you can show that, that, look, there's no question. Does anyone on this in this podcast have any doubt that the Trump organization intentionally misvalued their properties for tax purposes and for insurance? Of course they did, right? The, the, because the, everybody does. Maybe, but I have no everybody doubt. That, so, everybody. but the, the two issues are one you have to prove trump knew about it and okayed it and right. he's going to have cover he's going to say my lawyer said it was fine my accountant said it was fine which is a hard thing to overcome the other thing is and no mike i i've written about this i think it's unlikely possible but unlikely that anyone actually pulls the trigger on a criminal charge of the prior president because it would be such an attention grabber it would suck the oxygen out of everything you do for the next two years and right or wrong no matter what the president did and maybe he's lucky because of this it kind of feels un-american it's like not what we do in this country we don't slap handcuffs on yeah. the prior president that's what happens in colombia so, or you know other types of governments so well, let me let me hold on so there's, there's two things that, that it made me think of c to that list is that in my understanding of these types of crimes incarceration is not the normal penalty it's got to be really normally there's there's, mm. there's norm, normally there's penalties and, and damages and pain but people no well well i'm aware of people who i'm aware of people who were uh, convicted of tax evasion for significant amounts of money who just had to pay back three times the penalty and and and, and well, um, are you sure they were convicted criminally and not just criminally criminally yeah I mean, um, I got to tell you, though, for a six-figure fraud, most of most yeah. of the time, in my experience, that person ends up behind bars. But 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 to do it to a bit and, and you know things like valuations, they they they're hard to do. But the thing yeah. about Trump, and I know you don't want to talk about Trump, but the last thing you said, it does feel un-American because people are talking about convicting you of crimes prior to actually having the evidence of the crimes. It's, it's so obvious they're saying, we got to get this guy, so let's let's send out the dog and find something on him. He must have something we can find on him, yeah. which is probably true, but that's not the way it's supposed to work. Well, let me, yeah. I, I partially agree with you. I, th I think there's plenty of things the president did while in office that arguably could be crimes. Maybe. But I, but I do think, here's what I think is a problem. You have people in New York State in particular who ran for office on the on the campaign promise of I'm going after this family. Yeah, it's hard. And I don't want, as a prosecutor, I'm not with, I don't agree with that. You, you never should, look, the job is not about I'm gonna target this person because I don't like them for political reasons because you, the voters don't like them. That is not what the business is about. And to run for office and people are running right now for Manhattan DA, so watch this. Um, I am not down with 
vote for me so I can go after this one particular person. That's not how prosecution is supposed to work. And I'll tell you, no, Mike, I think you're right. If he ever did get charged by one of those people who ran on the let me get Trump ticket, he would have a good legal defense of what's called selective prosecution, meaning I was singled out for political reasons and I'm being prosecuted. It's a hard defense to make, but look, some of these people have done political ads and you just show them to the judge and go, judge, he ran on a ticket of he's going to get me, me, because I'm a Republican, because I'm president, because I'm a, I'm a schmuck, because they don't like whatever the reason. And you could have a real defense along those lines. So, so in my experience, the, um, the high powered accountants, the savvy ones, and I say my experience is not because I have this kind of money, but just because I'm talking to people, is that they, they, will, they, they know what the range is. They all play games with valuations because valuation yeah. by definition is a guess. I mean, I, I had this situation in my own life where I had to do an appraisal of yeah. a uh, property and I got two professional appraisals and they were night and day appraisals. Like, you know, which yeah. is the one which is correct? You don't know. So they'll, so they take the best valuation, they shop around for the best valuation, but to, to, to prove that a valuation was a fraud, that is, is a tough thing to do. And the accountants yeah. who are, who are, who are signing their names too to these documents, they don't want to wind up in jail. So they push it to the limit, but they don't normally put you in, in, in risk of going to prison. That's my, you know. yeah, it's tricky. You're right. Look, that's why it's hard to prove because there is some subjectivity to it. You would have to prove either a valuation that you would have to prove a couple any of a couple things. One, uh, an evaluation that's so beyond the pale, nobody could possibly believe it. Yeah. Two, some proof that they intentionally falsified. Like it came back at X and somebody said, nah, we need you to fudge out. Add, add a zero. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, then, and then three is inconsistent, right? Like if they evaluated the same Trump Tower and when they wanted it to be higher because they were saying getting a bank loan said it's worth 500 million. And then six months later when they wanted tax reasons, they said it's worth one-tenth of that you'd have a problem, but yeah. Right. That, and that's it's the most tricky. likely, that's the most likely out uh, scenario actually, I think. So yeah, uh, I think that so, could be, yeah. Uh, like a couple of questions and then we'll turn to Trump again because we will- uh, Oh, let's about, get away from Trump. A couple of questions about the mob. You know, you said a lot of times, you know, you flip guys, you flip guys. So yeah. like, let's say Mike is a, a mob guy. How okay. You flip him. Let's have, let's, well, let's okay. have a conversation. Can I ask you also, I'll piggyback yeah, off that. Yeah, please. I, I know a guy who, uh, he worked at Gotham. He was a door guy at Gotham and he was the head of- the Donnie Brasco's head of the, he said that, he said that Italians are much easier to flip than Albanians. I mean, much um, easier. True, true. That I flipped, I don't know, a dozen Italians in my career, 12, 10, 15, and one Albanian, the one I told you about. Right. So, but you know, you it's Italians, a, all you have to do is show them a picture of their family, show them their family, be like, you're going to go to jail <laughs> for 30 years. You're not going to be able to pick up your daughter again. Right, it's right. Over. You know, yeah. and, so, and Italians love their families. And how, how would you flip Mike right now? Well, I love the I way know. you turn. I love the way you turn the fact that Italians flipped into into an asset. Like it's because we love our families and they don't. <laughs> so let me let me let me show you. I'm gonna I'm gonna now That's demonstrate. With, I'm gonna now demonstrate with Mike the good way and the bad way to for a prosecutor to try to flip a guy. Okay, here's the bad way that people used to do, and it, it's ridiculous. I saw guys who used to go. Here's the deal. Vecchione, you're going to jail for fucking ever. And I don't give a shit because I don't care where you go. I'm going to go out to dinner after this. And if you lie to me, I will tear you apart. And if you go to trial, I will destroy you. And so that's it, right? That, okay, that's approach A. That doesn't work. Like 
you're not going to get some guy to be afraid. Look at me. No one's going to be afraid of me. You know, I'm not going to beat someone up over a table. Here's what I used to do, especially when I got better at this. I would say to Mike, I would say, Mike, here's the deal. You're, how old are you, Mike? 40? 48. 48. Do you have kids? No. Okay. Well, you, let's say you had kids because it's okay. easier. All right. You got your three kids in school. Look, I'll tell you exactly how this stands. Um, we've charged you with the murder of John Doe back in 2010. We charge you with a whole bunch of extortions. We charge you with sports gambling. We charge you with a little bit of heroin trafficking. Um, so here's the deal. You have three, three choices. You can go to trial. Go to trial. God bless. Everyone has that right. Um, odds are you're going to lose. I'm not telling you we're definitely going to beat you, but your lawyer can tell you what the stats are. 90% of these cases end up in conviction. If you get convicted, you're going away for a long time. If you get convicted on the murder, you'll never get out. If you get convicted on something less, 12, 15 years, you'll be 60, 65. Your kids will be out of high school. Option two, you can try to just work out a plea with us without cooperating. But I'll tell you right now, I'm not really feeling like much of a bargain. You want to take a plea to 15, Why are you years? feeling like a bargain? Because of the murder? Yeah, the, the murder puts you in a tough spot. Overall, I'm confident in our case. And right. you know, look, I'd think about a 15, 20 year plea, but, but not much below that. And again, you'll be until you're 63. Um, option C is cooperate. And you probably know how that works. And what that means is this, you got to tell us everything. Everything you did, even if you're not charged with it, everything that Noam did, everything that Hatem did, everything that everybody about you did, we'll have plenty of time to go through it. But if you cooperate, and at a certain point I was able to say, and, and, and if you want, go Google my name and you'll see, if you cooperate, I go to bat for you. You get what's called a 5K letter that I will write to your sentencing judge and you will see the break that you will get at, at that point. If you do this right, okay? Talk to Mike, go Google my name and Michael DeLeonardo. He did three murders, he cooperated. He ended up doing three and a half years in jail. John A. Light did, I forget how many, three, also three murders. He did two years in jail. So if you do this right, I go to bat for you and we take care of you. We will move you. We will move your family. We will protect your family. You can get on your feet for a new life. So it's up to you. It's simply a matter of, you know, what works for you in your life. You can do the math by yourself. Um, and if you're interested, we'll do this and we'll do it right. But don't, let's not start until you're ready to come clean. What about a gas pipe situation where it's like he flipped oh, and yeah. they just, I guess it was so many lies and what he was just lying to them. Yeah. That he was not usable. So he ended up getting a life sentence anyway. The worst thing you can do, I, I worked this in. Don't go down this road until you're ready because the worst thing you can do, gas pipe, Anthony Queso, right? Yes. Um, and there's various other examples. The worst thing you can do is to try to cooperate and play games. You come in here, you lie to us, you minimize, you try to protect somebody, you leave out somebody from a case, you're, you're screwed and it's over. And then it's the worst of all worlds for you because you'll already have pled guilty and now you're not getting the letter from us. So if you have any intention on doing that, let's not so even bother. I, I wonder, Norm, if you and the second and the other C, because you're a good negotiator, what would you yeah. say? Yeah. Oh, Me? That's true. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, if you're, negotiating, if you're the criminal and you're negotiating the deal that Ellie just said, what would you say? How would I, don't you like, I don't like the anti-Semitic uh, impl implication <laughs> of I'm a good negotiator. I'm not a good negotiator. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what the common response is. Well, what can you guarantee me? Right? Like, you know, what sentence am I going to get? Can we do a deal where I'm going to get two years or something? Right? I mean, that's a very common thing. Well, my guy will cooperate if you promise that he won't do more than four well, years. What if he cooperate without, like, can he still be like a, like a, like a rat? Like he still be, I don't want to say a rat, but what, like, can he still be in the mob active? Oh, 
Well, I mean, it, even better it, deal. If it's not known, look, the best cooperators, and I've had this a couple of times, are guys where they don't know the person's been arrested, where you grab the guy in the middle of the night at his home, flip him. We did this with a guy named Howie Santos, okay? Howie was a driver for the Gambino family. Puerto Rican guy could never get made, right? Not Italian, can't get made. So he had very limited career prospects. So we sent an agent out with a little piddly charge on him. And how he was ready to flip, and how he wore a wire for us. It's not a physical. I'm making them. It's not a physical wire anymore. Yeah. It's more sophisticated. Six months. How he taped everything he did with these guys all day, watching football all night at the at the restaurant at the strip club, you know. And we we had hundreds of hours of tapes from Howie because he was. They didn't know he was cooperating with us because we hadn't publicly arrested him. And when we pulled Howie off the streets. We took down 25 guys all at once because we had everybody dead to rights. What, what happened? You've ever had a situation where a guy wants to flip, he wants to tell you everything, but he wants you to lay off the parts that are going to let yeah. his wife know that he was cheating? Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, look, that's common, actually. What I, I used to, what I used to tell, I mean, there's, you know, what I used to tell guys is you have to expect it's all going to come out because when you get cross-examined at trial, all that shit's coming out. So But I got to do the time. <laughs> I got to tell you, I got, I got one for you in a second, but, but we had a case, we had a guy named Anthony Aralata, who, who a Genovese family made guy who flipped and they killed a guy named Gary Westerman. They lured him into the woods. Um, again, friends, his best friend, they told him, we're going to go rob somebody. We're going to break into this dude's house through the back way. He lived out in the woods in Agawam, Massachusetts. And Westerman was in for it. And then they turned their guns on Westerman, shot him, bashed him over the head, buried him. We actually dug his body up seven years later. But Aralata told us, he said, yeah, I may not get this exactly right, but he said, when he was laying out the who's who, he said, yeah, um, I was actually, I think he was, I think he was having an affair with Westerman's wife. And we were like, oh God. Oh no. And, you know, like talk about complicating this now. So, um, but look, that, that comes out. I mean, there's, I really can't promise you that won't come out. Like you're going to be an open book. If, if you're going to do this, you got to do it that way. Um, so what would happen sometimes is a guy would be really reluctant because like he didn't want to implicate his father-in-law in some very minor crime. And what I would tell these guys is if you have somebody you want to protect, which is very common, don't lie to me. Tell me there's somebody involved in this who I don't want to give up and we'll deal with it then. And I would honestly give people passes. If David said, ah, one time I had my wife sign something, I had my father-in-law sign a loan that I knew was fraudulent, but, but, but we give him a pass. We give him a pass. It's worth it to get a good cooperator. You know, you, you have that discussion. Uh, so uh, last question, we'll yeah. turn to Trump, but it's kind of like a, a Trump thing. So you sold Fear City, right? Sorry, say again? Uh, you sold Fear oh, yeah. City? The Netflix yeah, one. So they, they showed that at that time, the mob was controlling everything. Yeah. At that time was when Trump was booming in business and listen they, they're controlling they, they, construction he's trump. doing building yeah, yeah. and they're saying the, uh, the mob controlling everything but they didn't say anything about trump with the mob is is yeah. that how is that possible like how did well, he manage not to work wasn't with roy Cohn like a go-between yeah roy was like the go-between you, you can do that without with go-betweens and you don't have to communicate directly with the mob but if you want concrete in your building you're gonna need yeah. to deal with them at some level right um so that's the legend of roy Cohn. yeah i mean look there's lots of sort of tales and stories out there, but I don't know of any specific thing. Donald Trump never came up in any mob case I was doing, but I mean, look, you could do the math. Every 
I used to have, I had Gambino guys who were heavy into the construction racket. Michael DiLeonardo, Joey D'Angelo. These guys could point to any building. They used to tell me the federal courthouse in Manhattan, they said, that's a Gambino, but we built that thing. That's our concrete in there. You paid trip, the federal government paid double or triple what they should have for that. Um, and so they, every major construction project in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx from 78 to, you know, the present yeah. has been somehow under mob control. And that's not to say that the people who are doing the building are doing anything wrong, but they are being at a minimum victimized by the mob jacking up prices and shakedowns and threatening work stoppages and blocking the truck. So I don't know of any specifics of Trump being involved in the mob, but there's been articles about Roy Cohn and Trump and how they dealt with the mob over the years and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's talk about Trump then. So I give you another reason why I'm skeptical about Trump. Um, getting convicted of anything you tell me if this is makes sense to you michael cohen <laughs> was dying to keep his ass out of jail and you presume so, so what we're looking for now is some big crime that michael cohen obviously had no idea about it because if he knew about it he would have he would have come forward with it because he was desperate to stay out of jail well, so we're not presuming that Michael Cohen went to jail and still keeping Trump secrets, are we? No. So Michael Cohen, he hasn't kept secrets. I mean, Michael Cohen testified in front of Congress for two full days, I think it was. Right, but no about big About all the crimes. About all the crimes that these crimes that he knew of that Trump had, convi had committed. But they were small, there were small, small, yeah, and it was not even crimes. It was the right. Some of it wasn't crimes, but some of it was. I mean, Michael Cohen talked about Michael Cohen to this day says, and the DO US Department of Justice, my old office, said in a filing. The reason Michael Cohen made those hush money payments to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal was at the direction of Donald Trump, individual one, Donald, we all know that's Donald Trump. So the question though is, is DOJ going to have, right, it's not the crime of the century. That was no crime. It's hard to prove. It's not a crime. Uh, Michael Cohen has said that Trump did that. Michael Cohen has said that Trump did the whole valuation, you know, in falsely inflated or deflated valuation. But you're right, Noam, the difficult decision that a prosecutor has to make, forget about it being Donald Trump. Even yeah. if it wasn't the former president, even if it was just big businessman, whoever, is are you going to build a case on the back of Michael Cohen? And Michael Cohen, in a way, in a lot of ways, is a fairly typical cooperator in that he's got a lot of dirt in his own past. He's a he's a you know an unseemly character who's admitted to a whole bunch of crimes. Probably you know lied about a million things before when he was uh, working for Trump and otherwise. And are you willing to build a case on the back of that person? And the answer always for me came down to how much support do I have? Because if Michael Cohen tells me they inflated and deflated assets, that's one thing. But if I can then pull the documents and prove it, I feel a lot better about it, yeah, right? But so, was, um, you know, so, so about, about uh, wait, wait, wait. So the Stormy, the Stormy Daniels thing, obviously we, 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 I think we debated this one time before, but probably, you know, the, the, the problems with it are as number one, According to Michael Cohen, he Trump just told him take care of this, and they had taken care of these types of things many times before. You know, number right. two, um, as far as I read it carefully, at the time Michael Cohen never told him that it was there was a legal way and an illegal way to do it. Michael Cohen chose how to do it. There was, he certainly could have written her a check. Number three, Trump was kind of the victim here. This was a this was a um, consensual affair. And all of a sudden, the woman is hitting him up for money. You're like, you know. Well, so, so, yeah. So, look. Yeah, I mean, those, those nobody's doing all, time. Nobody's doing time on that fact pattern. That's those for sure. are all those are all difficulties with it. Um, and and I don't, you know, yeah. to the extent the facts are true or false, I don't know. Yeah. But look, it's a difficult case. It really is. And especially now, right? 
I mean, it, it feels like ancient history. It was, this all happened four years ago and we've been through the Mueller report. We've been through Ukraine. I just feel like the political appetite um, and the political risk of federally indicting Donald Trump. I mean, imagine we're, we're going to find out probably later this week who the next attorney. Let, let me add. Let me add one. Imagine that person indicts him. Yeah. By the way, Rudy, by the way, breaking news: Rudy Giuliani has tested positive for COVID. Oh no! Well, it's just a matter of time. So, so let me just add one other thing for the listeners about the Stormy Daniels thing because this is what really I think uh, puts it crystallizes why it's so weird. If you listen to the people who who um, say it's illegal, what they say is the following that the Trump campaign was actually supposed to write a check to Stormy Daniels and then right. put this as part of their campaign expenses, meaning that little old ladies in Pasadena right. would find out, oh, I donated money to this presidential <laughs> candidate. And he rightfully and morally then wrote a check to his mistress. And right. then people would be saying, that's a crime because you're not supposed well, to take campaign yeah. money and, and get, pay off your mistress. They would have had him right. either way. It's, you know, it's ridiculous, you know. Well, the, the crime, right, the crime is it was, it was, right. The crime is it was really, you would have to argue as a prosecutor, this was a campaign expenditure because- That's right, he was supposed to write a check for the campaign. That's the way good people do it. They no, take campaign contributions, hold on. They take campaign contributions and then they use, they write checks to their mistresses. I gotta say, that's, that's the actually moral good, way it's done. It's a good question. I wonder if you could just, in your campaign ex expenditures, just list, you know, $2,000 on, on lawn signs and $4,000 on TV ads and $130,000 hush money, you know, $130, <laughs> hush money for, yeah. for- That's the underlying theory. Unless yeah. he, I mean, you can't say there was no way to do it. There's two ways to do it. The way he did it or, you know, so well, anyway. Yeah. You have to pay off yeah. your former. Yeah. Yeah. You do the, have to pay. The, the pardons. Can he pardon yeah. himself and his kids? Because this is the hard thing of yeah. the- so, he can probably pardon just about anybody um, legally. We're talking legally here. The pardon power in the Constitution is extremely broad. It all the Constitution says is the president shall have the, par the power to grant pardons and reprieves. And there's almost no limitation on it. Now, can he pardon his kids? Sure. I mean, would it be disgraceful and humiliating and an ugly historical footnote? Yeah. No, but it wouldn't. Well, we can talk about that. Can, can I pause you there and say why it wouldn't? Go ahead. Go ahead. Because you already told us the reason why. Because people are running for office saying they want to put these people in jail. That's exactly what... So it's not disgraceful if and at when, all. If and yeah. when the, the president pardons his children and Rudy Giuliani, he will not say they've done something wrong. He will say they've done nothing wrong. However, I and my people around me have been continually targeted by That's Democrats, right. House Democrats, opportunistic Democrats. And in order to protect them from ongoing political harassment, that's exactly what he's going to say. Mark my words. And look, Again, we can argue the argument, whether that's corrupt, self-dealing, whatever, but lawful, it's probably lawful. Can um, he pardon himself? So nobody knows because it's never happened. The argument that people, I want to hear what you guys think of this. So the argument that people make that he can is the constitution doesn't say he can't. The constitution says shall have power to grant reprieves. And if they, if the people who wrote the constitution wanted to say, except for, they yeah. knew how to do that. There's plenty of places in the constitution where they say you can do this except for that. The other argument is, yeah, but the, the framers, the Madison and Hamilton and all these guys, they hated self-dealing. This is ultimate self-dealing. DOJ looked at the issue in the 70s and concluded that it's not lawful. But here's an argument I want to hear you guys take on, because you guys think about language and that kind of stuff. One argument that's gotten popular is, well, he cannot pardon someone. He cannot pardon himself because the word in the Constitution is grant. The president shall have the power to grant a pardon. And there's an argument out there that some scholars are making that you can only grant something to another person, not yourself. But what do you what do you all make of that? 
Well, we have a, our friend Steve Fabrica. He have a, a a great theory. He will step down a day before, and Mike Pence will pardon him. Well, hold on. Yes, we can talk about that. But I'm interested. Oh, wow. What do you, Mike? What can I can I call Mike? What do you think? Just as a, you know, like as a stand up comedian, you think about linguistics and words right. and how. You, what do you make of that argument that you can only grant something to an other person? No, I think it's a small. I don't know. You're making a small. Yeah. It's a small interpretation. You know, yeah. it's, it's such a minor thing for such a big gesture. You know what I mean? It's, I agree. It's like, yeah. It kind of seems like splitting hairs. Yeah. And, and look, I, I, I say, why can't you grant something to yourself? You can go, I don't know. I've eaten healthy the last three days. I'm granting myself permission to yeah. eat a whole pizza tonight. Yeah. Right? Like, I'm going to tell you why he shouldn't be able to pardon himself or why, why the Constitution didn't mean that. Okay. I can't remember the... Um, I can't remember the name, of the, the number of the Federalist paper I'm referring to. Uh, I would remember, I would be able to remember it if it was the name of a strip club or even the street number of a strip club. Was. But um, I think it was Federalist paper 4040, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, uh, it was Federal. It was a flash dance. Come on, that's anyway. a callback. <laughs> um, so, but the, the Federalist, the one that that uh, that uh, Hamilton wrote, um, that they that they were constantly discussing during the impeachment thing, where they were the, talking about whether okay. that be criminal or not. Yeah. In that Federalist paper, he makes the point. Says, look. These people will still be uh, criminally liable after they leave office. These presidents will still be criminally liable right. after they leave office. Right. Which, Im but if the if the understanding was that they could pardon themselves, then no, they wouldn't be still criminally liable when they leave office. You would assume he would pardon himself on the way out the door. Uh, so I think it's pretty clear they were not contemplating the idea that. I mean, if, if you can pardon yourself, that would be the assumed routine. You get accused of a crime, you pardon yourself. And right. you go on your merry way. So well, I don't you know, believe it's Rudy. Well. Rudy Giuliani even said a year or two ago in 2018, he said a self-pardon would be unthinkable. He said, and it would trigger immediate impeachment. So I, I agree that I think it is reasonable to say what they intended was if you do pardon yourself, you're going to get thrown out of office immediately. Yeah. I, I, yeah. So when you, by the way, remember a pardon can only go for federal crimes, not state crimes. Yeah, so when we talk about the DA and the, and the state AG. They're not covered by a point. But state crimes weren't, well, no, federal crimes weren't an issue, right? Right. At the time of the Constitution, there were only state crimes, right? There weren't really federal yeah, I mean, crimes. All then. the, all the yeah. fraud stuff would be a state yeah. crime. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe my argument doesn't hold. Oh, I, and Hatem, you were talking yeah. about the, yeah, could the VP pardon him? Yeah. I mean, look, it's exactly what happened with Gerald Ford and Richard Nixon. They didn't work it out. I don't know. Who knows if they worked it out beforehand, but Nixon resigned, Ford took over and immediately pardoned him. Now, could Trump and Pence do something like that? Maybe. Um, I think there's an argument that if they work it out and say, in exchange for me stepping down and you getting to be president, you pardon me. I think there's an argument that's a bribery or something illegal, but could they do it? Sure. I don't think they will. I don't think Trump's ego will permit him to step down early. And let's, and I don't think Mike Pence would agree to it. Mike Pence wants to have a political future. Yeah. If he does this, it'll be the end of his political. Yeah. I agree so with you about have Pence. a very interesting book coming out summer 2021, correct? Yes, correct. You want to talk about it? Yeah, so July 2021, I am writing a book uh, for HarperCollins called Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department. It's basically a real prosecutor's um, case against Bill Barr. And one of the things about Bill Barr, I think he's been dishonest. I think he's corrupted DOJ. One interesting footnote about Bill Barr, he's now been Attorney General of the United States twice. He was AG under George H.W. Bush in the 90s. But he's never tried a case as a prosecutor. He didn't come up through the system like I did. And when you come up through the system like I did of DOJ, you learn all the all the rules, but also all the unwritten rules, all the principles, all the codes, all the things you do and don't do. And look, you guys, stand-ups. I want to hear what from you. 
like stand-ups have, I'm sure, a million unwritten rules, right? You do this, you don't do that. Baseball players, you don't step on the chalk line. You don't walk on the mound unless you're the pitcher, right? And so the case that I make is he never got that upbringing. He didn't have those principles sort of instilled in him. And so he approached DOJ from a crass political point of view and not from the point of view of someone who's really looking to do justice and, and sort of have a backbone and stand up. So that's coming out this summer. What, what is the code that, that you, you, you tell me? Like, what is the code? So the code's a lot of things. Um, for example, you have to, yeah, the chapter one is earn your stripes. What I just said, you can't just become the AG if you've never tried a case, right? You can't, you can't do a, a, a set at the, at the seller if, if it's your first time, right? No, would you let someone who comes in and goes, no, trust me, I've never, I've never done a set, but I'm going to be good. No, you would laugh at that. Person. Yeah, you did, Thinking, Madonna. Well, right. You know. But but you would you would he think did, that, he didn't dare to say no. Yeah, you would think that person's a pretender unless it's Madonna. And if Madonna wants to be Attorney General, God bless. Um, but I'll give you a couple others. We had something called the podium privilege. And again, stand-ups can maybe relate to this. And this the idea was we would second guess each other all day long in the SDNY, bust each other's chops, go back and forth. That's stupid. Don't do this, do that. But when it's over, when you get behind the podium at a trial, the second guessing ends because it's up to the person who's standing at the podium, standing at the mic, he can read the room, he gets to make the call and you don't stab him in the back afterwards, right? And Bill Barr did that repeatedly with, if you remember Michael Flynn, Roger Stone, he comes down from being AG after his guys had full DOJ approval and he said, no, no, no. And he stabbed him in the back publicly. And that's something he would have known you just do not do if you're sort of raised in the right tradition of the Justice Department. I'll give you just one more. Independence, political independence. You are raised in the Justice Department to, to understand that politics has no part in anything. I served four years under the Bush administration, four years under the Obama administration. It didn't make a damn bit of difference. Um, you never talked politics. It had nothing to do with your cases, yet Bill Barr time and again used DOJ, really lied to the public, twisted the law in order to do Donald Trump's political bidding. Although interestingly, there was a little twist last week when Bill Barr turned on him and said, all this stuff about election fraud is BS, um, which is an interesting little twist at the end. Yeah, well, Ellie, I, I, you, know, you know I disagree with you a, a lot about this stuff. Maybe when your book sure. comes out, uh, you, you can come on. But I, yeah. just for instance, my, my little um, personal knowledge of this thing was Stone because Randy Credico, who, who is uh, the guy that- Yeah, I know Randy Credico. Yeah, he, he's, he's, he's a stand-up comedian. And I know, I know. His and actually, dog, uh, his dog like peed in the green room. Right. And, and by I, the way, that dog is part of the case because Roger Stone threatened to kill that dog. Well, that's what I'm getting at. And, <laughs> and, and I had Randy Credico on my other podcast around this time. And, and he was so, he spoke so um, carelessly. I didn't actually run the podcast because I thought he might get himself in trouble. I have it. He was like a little <laughs> drunk or whatever it is. But the notion. Prosecutor subpoena Gnome. He has the tape of that. Yeah. <laughs> but the notion that Stone's threat to kill Critico's dog was was actually something significant no. that, a, that a man's you're gonna love my dog. that a man's incarceration should be significantly increased because that actually offended me you're gonna love, my book. Gonna love that... my book no because what I say in the book is Bill Barr ended up asking for a lower sentence for Roger Stone and he ended up saying I was right the judge agreed with me and what I say in the book is that I agree with that I argue in the book, I said on air with CNN, he's not going to get the sentence, the super high sentence, because that witness tampering, look, it's real, but even the victim says I was never afraid. So yeah. I've said publicly, he's not going to get the high sentence, he's going to get the it low sentence. It wasn't real. Not the low sentence. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Bill Barr, during his time in office, DOJ 
prosecuted something like 80,000 defendants, okay? And which two cases out of 80,000 did he come down from his DOJ attorney general chair and undermine his own prosecutors? Roger Stone and Michael Flynn, and think about this. Either it's political or it's just coincidence. And if it's coincidence, then imagine you took 80,000 post-it notes and posted them on the wall and blindfolded yourself and took two darts and went boom, boom. What did they, oh my God, one hit Roger Stone, one hit Michael Flynn. I mean, what a cosmic coincidence. That the well, it's not a coincidence. It were, it's were not political. It's, well, it's not a coincidence and I wouldn't call it, I understand why the word political is, is being used, but it's a, these are two um, prosecutions that were going on as a result of a, of an investigation that the wheels had come off of. Meaning that what, what Barr realized, what we've all realized now, even Yates is saying like, well, if we had known everything we know now, mm -hmm. we would have never gone down this path at all. These so, poor suckers, Flynn and so they were part of a, of a whole enterprise that has a sketchy provenance at this point. So and, things, yeah. and, and so, and so Barr's like, well, this is, and I'm, and I have, what, what was the name the, uh, the guy, the, the, the Inspector General, was in Horowitz investigating, and now you got Durman, and who knows what they're finding out. And he's like, these, this, these people are, are victims here. And we also yeah. threatened Flynn's son. And yeah, there's some politics. He is a Republican uh, uh, Attorney General. But listen, don't, don't, um, you can say that he turned on Trump now, but another, but I look at it as the guy marches to his own drum. And that, so, is, that, is, that, his, that his opinions might perhaps be less political and maybe he just agreed with these opinions, you know? Yeah, so, so let me say, first of all, that's not exactly what he said. What Barr said was his reasons for coming in and interfering with Stone and Flynn cases. Also, he, he did not interfere with a lot of the other Mueller cases. And, and I would add, uh, Bill Barr's original sin is he lied to the public about the Mueller report. Um, and Robert Mueller himself said that, as did a federal judge later. So that is inexcusable. And he held back the report itself from the public for almost a month while he spun all this BS. Now, what happened last week when Barr came out and said there's no evidence of fraud, it was an interesting turn. And what I think is going on is a couple things for, from Bill Barr's perspective. Number one, he just didn't have, there was no, I mean, look, Bill Barr has shown us that he can, he can twist facts, he can twist the law, he can distort facts. He did it, in fact, about election fraud beforehand. He got caught lying about it several times. But when you don't have anything to work with, you can't, you know, it's like if you told Bill Barr to dunk a basketball, he just can't do it. And so if you have no proof, you, there's nothing you can, you, he can't conjure proof out of thin air. The other thing is Bill Barr is smart. He's very smart. And by last week, he was smart enough to know this whole election thing is over, right? And I'm not going to go down with this ship. I'm not going to get lumped in with the Rudys and the Jenna Ellis's. And I'm, I, I need to maintain some legal respectability here. And finally, I give Bill Barr some actual credit. He did yeah, the right thing. Yeah. Whatever his whatever his motives are, and it doesn't cancel out all the corruption that he that he committed over the last two years. But he did the right thing by standing up to the president. And by the way, I don't know what do you guys do. You think Trump's going to fire him? No, but no. Uh, but but no. listen, I want to I want to say more about the Bill Barr thing because I, it, it actually makes sense to me. Barr viewed the entire FBI thing as having dirty hands. And had little sympathy, and it was very easy for Barr to lean on that side and say, you know, that's just, the sentences are going, you know, essentially everything he can do to undo the damage that was done. On the Trump election fraud thing, I mean, he's still a patriot, I presume. He looks at it and says, well, this is not the FBI. This is my boss 
doing damage to the country on a lie. He's bullshitting here. This is not he, he he was right about his Russia complaints. He actually was mistreated on the Russia stuff. He's not right about election fraud. The thing I I'm, not gonna go, I'm not going to go to bat to him yeah. on election fraud. But here's That's what here, here's the here's the knock on that, though, for Barr. He spent months leading up to this November, starting really in the spring summer, really supporting Trump's whole election fraud claim. He went on TV. He did media. He made public statements about mail-in voting, massive potential for fraud, mail-in voting, whatever. Right he, about that. And he never had proof of it. And he got caught lying about it. He went on CNN, did an interview with Wolf Blitzer and said, we prosecuted a case of 170,000 fraudulent ballots in Texas. And Wolf said, okay, um, any other cases that you've indicted? And, and Barr said, yes, several. And Wolf said, how many? And, and Barr said, well, I don't know how many. And we are investigating, which, but then it came out that Texas thing was, first of all, not a DOJ indictment. It was a state indictment. Second of all, it didn't involve 170,000 ballots. It involved one ballot, one ballot. He lied his face off. And Mike, DOJ Mike, had, what do you think? Okay, but no, no, but Ellie, yeah. Ellie, no, I want to tell you, I think that Trump and Barr were absolutely right about the dangers of mail-in voting. Why make and up I, facts about Texas? Why make what? up facts about 170,000 ballots when there's one and they took it back? I presume if Barr went on record about something like 170,000 votes, he was mistaken not making it up. I want to hear Mike's, uh, Mike's opinion on that. Wait, hold on a second. <laughs> but um, the, the fact is that uh, there have been enough big bunches of ballots that have turned up for us to be satisfied that this was not a secure system in the sense that if this had been Bush-Gore 2000, trying to count Florida, the amount, the, the things, the irregularities that we've seen could actually have been significant, significant enough to turn the election. We're just very lucky that this vote actually wasn't close. So none of this adds up to anything. But I want to add one other thing to this. This is from the New York Times in 2012, before it mattered. Error and fraud at issues as absentee voting arises. This is what the Times is saying before um, it was... Uh, politically mattered, and I'll read one paragraph from it. It's from 2012. In the last presidential election, 35.5 million voters requested mail ballots. Only 27.9 million were counted. I'll jump to the last paragraph, um, enough, the last line, I mean. Another 2.9 million ballots received by voters did not make it back. This suggests an overall failure rate of as much as 21%. This is what the New York Times was reporting about a mail. Failure rate there just means people not sending it back. It doesn't mean fraud. You're allowed yeah. to request a ballot and not mail it back. Don't care. That's not a problem. No, the failure rate is not, not sending it back. These are, these, um, well, you can. I'll send you the article. Three point yeah. nine. So another two. But look, look. I don't think I don't think anyone out there thinks that. No, they rejected. Eight hundred thousand were rejected. Okay. In other words. Obviously, so reject. That's how it's supposed to work. There's supposed to be a filter to reject yeah. bad ballots or something. But look, it's it's a it's a fraud system. Let me tell you what I let me tell you what time. I agree with. Yeah. Yeah. I think what one of the big lessons that we learned from 2020 is if and next time we get into an election where it comes down to one state, and God forbid it's ever as close as Florida was in 2000, we're gonna have we're gonna have some crazy battles going on, legal yeah. battles and political battles. So. Um, yeah, what, look, if this, what if this had simply been as close as it was in 2016? Well, it was kind of that close because, I mean, if Trump had flipped three states by, I think, a, a total of which amounted, the gap is about 80 to 100,000 votes, yeah. he would have won. Yeah. So in some senses, it was pretty close. But look, here's the thing to remember. 
I think a lot of folks think that we have one, the election system. We don't. We have 51 election systems. Every state and D.C. has its own. And everyone has different rules and different regulations and different kinds of envelopes and different signatures. And, you know, whether that's a good thing or not, I think is something we ought to think about as a country. And um, look, this year took us by surprise because of COVID. And the numbers yeah. of, elect of, of mail and ballots was obviously way more than before. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see what happens in 2024. Mike, do we stay with this? Do we adjust? Do we, who knows? Mike, what do you think? Yeah, uh, it seems to me just from an, I'm not a political guy, but it, it seems to me it wasn't more, the election just from the surface wasn't more fraudulent than any other election that we've had. There may be problems with it, but I don't think that it was, it's any different than any other election that we've had. But I just want to ask you guys, because it's yeah. your podcast. I don't know how long you want to go, but I, it's not every day I get to talk to like a guy like Ellie. So I have more mob questions yeah go, go ahead go ahead. go, go. Uh, I, I, but i don't want to step on your toes if you want to keep talking no, 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 go ahead let's do that people here, people can hear anyone talk trump anytime let's talk yeah this we don't yeah. want we don't want you guys are, no it's a it's a it's a highly intellectual conversation you'll forget my you'll forget my friend mike he speaks when he should listen go, go ahead go ahead ellie <laughs> <laughs> is there uh in this day and age 2020 right now is there still a commission so ah, not like question. in the old days so the, the commission was the sort of meeting or you know meeting of all the bosses right is that what that's what you're talking about yes um no i mean look the families are very cautious about meeting especially publicly the families in my experience try to do business as little as possible they try to keep keep their stuff separate because that's when you get into beefs that's when you get into potentially wars they really try to avoid that i mean there were very few times when i had to ever deal with any case or 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 you know dispute across family lines because it's just it's hard enough dealing with the 130 prima donnas in your own family right. never mind when you have to start crossing over yeah. into family line how, yeah, could the, possibly, how could they possibly avoid it i understand in philadelphia yeah. or detroit yeah. or chicago where there's one family but there's yeah. five families so, so i gotta imagine they're constantly uh, yeah they're constantly running into each other running into each other yeah yeah right. you know they, you know the system they, the same business yeah you know, and now they're all chasing the same nickel, basically. The system they have for that is what's called the sit-down, which is really their own internal court system in a way. And there's actually like rules and procedures. So let's say, Mike, you're in the Vecchione family and I'm in the Honig family, right? Um, and we got two guys that both want to shake, think they're shaking down the same bar, okay? That, you know, so what will happen is the guys who realize there's a problem will send word up the line and then two people of equal rank. So two captains... Two it wouldn't be bosses really, but two captains, two soldiers, whatever, will set a time, they will meet, and they will try to work out an agreement. It's the same way that really like lawyers would negotiate a yeah. settlement. And right? that's and so you happening go, now? Ellie, yeah, absolutely, now. absolutely. Okay, but there's yep. no overall commission anymore. No, there's not an overall sort of like United Nations-ish body, right? Like they used to have with the commission. It's really case by case, dispute by, by dispute, Resolve through the sit-down process, which so, is sort uh, of the so, uh, my own court system. Yeah, my friend Tony Darrow, comedian Tony Darrow, we were talking about Fear City, and he said that the Rico is is racist because it's only used against Italian, never been used to be against anybody else. <laughs> That's uh, a good point. Um, so yeah, so look, Rico is the racketeer influence corrupt organizations. It's a federal law that allows you to charge basically members of a mob group or any organized criminal activity with sort of a broader range of criminal conduct than you might ordinarily be able to, to charge. Really, the guy who started using that against the mob was Rudy Giuliani in the 80s in Fear City, if you saw that. I used it all the time 
What's happening is we're seeing RICO though used more broadly now because it's a powerful weapon prosecutors has. It allows you to charge state crimes. It allows you to charge things that happened a long time ago that you couldn't otherwise charge, but they're using it against non-Italian organized crime families, the Albanians, the Chinatown gangs, the Russian gangs. You're seeing it used in some political corruption cases, right? Um, the mayor of Atlanta years ago, Bill Campbell, I think was his name, was charged with RICO because the whole city, all, you know, the city government had sort of become so corrupt. You, I've seen it charged against unions. Um, so they I've have seen, to establish the yeah. organization they're prosecuting as a continuing criminal enterprise. Exactly. So how do you how do you establish the city of Atlanta is a so, continuing criminal enterprise? Right. So what we used to say is it, the organization itself doesn't have to be criminal, like the Gambino family. It can be. Union Local 1181, the union is not an illegal enterprise. The city of Atlanta is not in, but if you can show that there were enough people operating it in a criminal manner, then you have what you need for RICO and it's powerful. Um, and people are using it sort of more broadly. In fact, there's a pretty good argument that it's actually too broad, it's too expansive. And you can almost convict people almost by association. It's like, if I knowingly associated with other guys who were committing crimes and I knew about it, then you can be held liable for it. So, um, you know, it, look, yeah, you do have to prove though that this stuff was being done as part of some sort of enterprise. And we used to say, look, they're not gonna wear varsity jackets that say Gambino family. They don't have to have tattoos saying Gambino family. They don't even really call it the get The mob guys don't actually call it the Gambino, the Genovese family for them. They do kind of now, but those are names that law enforcement attach to them. But it's, it's what's called an association in fact, like a bunch of guys who know each other, operate under some set of rules, structures, hierarchy. Then you have a RICO enterprise, a racketeering enterprise. So why, why there's not other families? Like I would think that people are going to be like, you know what, let's do our thing, you know? What do you mean? I'm sorry. Say that again. Like there's only five families right now. Yeah. Uh, well, good luck entering that market. They will stomp you out real quick. I mean, if you, if you arrive, I mean, look, this happens with the Albanians because the, Alba the, the Albanians, so the strip club, the 4040 club. Or 4040 is, is a not a strip club. It's a Jay-Z club. I think you're talking about another club. Maybe I'm talking about, I think at the time it was 4040 or 2020, maybe. maybe uh, 2020, again, yeah. Whatever one it was. Yeah. That strip club the Albanians tried to come in and say, this is our territory. And they busted the place up. And then the club was like, what do we do? And the Gambinos came in and said, we understand you have a problem with these guys. We can solve your problem. And they came in and they pushed out the Albanians and, you know, uh, made clear that this is our territory. So it's, it's a hard market to break into. Yeah. You can't just, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not in for any startup mob families. So, I, I would so, not bet on those. Yeah, it's not, it's not a good business model now. So yeah. Giuliani obviously is a hero in your world back then, right? How do back you then. Feel about, yeah, how do you feel about this whole thing changing? Uh, it's a shame because Rudy Giuliani was a deeply respected, you know, he ran the SDNY uh, in the 80s, 20 years before I got there. And he did, you guys talked about the commission cases. Rudy Giuliani did landmark mob cases. He took down bosses. I mean, he went right at them at a time when they were at their height of power. Um, and then, of course, you know, we all remember 9-11. I mean, he, he was, you know, an exemplary leader during 9-11. But he's really gone downhill in a major way. And it's embarrassing. And I feel for him. I don't know if something's wrong with him. Yeah. But he, he is just wildly espousing insane conspiracy theories and really just making himself into a joke and, and it's his fault, but yeah. I, I wish he would just sort of go quietly so in, away. In, in the seventies, how come the mob never got to be like a cartel? Um, 
Well, they were like a cartel in a lot of ways. What do you mean not like? But I mean like as strong as a cartel. Um, I think part of the reason is because our government is harder to infiltrate than than countries that have cartels, right? One of the key things that makes a cartel a cartel is they control law enforcement, they control government leaders. And there were always a handful of cops maybe who were feeding information, crooked cops here and there, maybe a local official, but they were never able to truly infiltrate um, our law enforcement and governmental mechanisms in a meaningful way. I think that's what separates the two. Did, did the, did, was, was John F. Kennedy uh, under, the, under the influence of the mob in any way, in your opinion? You know, I really don't know. I mean, I don't know anything more than anyone else about that. I mean, I know that the history is his father, um, Joseph Kennedy, was a, was tied up with the mob, I guess, in Chicago, right? Or something like that. Yeah. So, but I don't, I mean, nothing obviously came up in my cases about that. Frank Sinatra. <laughs> what are the implications of Joe Messina flipping in 2000? Well, that was huge. Joe Messina was a boss, right? And Joe Messina was the first or one of the first very high ranking guys to flip. And it's funny, Mike, because when you're flipping a guy, we always say you want to cooperate up, not down. You would you want a lower ranking guy to tell you what the higher ranking guys were doing because it just plays better in front of a jury. Joe Messina, you're calling the boss and he's going, that guy was under me. That guy was three levels under me, you know, and it doesn't it doesn't sit as well with a jury when a boss is saving himself by turning in his lower guys. That said, on the other hand, he's the boss. This guy knew everything. He really blew the doors open on sort of higher level cooperation. And that's what led to, I think, guys like Michael DeLeonardo, captains, um, powerful guys, guys in the sort of upper echelons flipping. Messina was a big moment. I, I wonder, like, what is the relationship between the mob in the U.S. and in Italy? Almost nothing. Almost nothing. I know there's the, uh, what is it? Is it Sopranos where the guy with the, so Furio, Furio comes over, right? Yeah. Yeah. Almost nothing. I mean, it, the, the Italian mob is a whole different creature. It is way more violent, yeah. way more, they control government. I went to a thing in Sicily they, once, an Italian organized crime thing to commemorate um, the prosecutor who they murdered in the nineties. Yeah. And you realize that the mob really controls that big, big swaths of that country, of the government, of the judges, of the prosecutors, but there's almost no- No connection? Take. It's just too hard. It's too risky. Why deal with international stuff if you don't have to? I wonder if that's changed in recent years, but- But, but do they have roots or anything? Because I no, follow soccer and like Ellie, isn't, Italy. Isn't there a Sicilian faction of like the Gambinos who's running the Gambinos? The, the guy, Frank Cali, who got murdered, yeah. from the Sicilian faction. Yeah, I mean, I think that refers more to people who have sort of Sicilian roots than oh. people really dealing with Andrageta, you know, or whatever, Andrageta, whatever you call the Sicilian family. But there's not a lot of actual, it's too, I mean, look, these guys are really reluctant to even deal with the Philly mobsters, right? We did one case where the New York mobsters and the Philly mobsters were like, why don't we meet and see if we can, you know, I don't know, do something together. And they actually met at like a diner in Jersey, but it didn't go anywhere. They just, you know, they're very localized businesses. They, they don't have... Um, it's hard for hard enough for them to to do business across state lines. Never mind international. Hey, Ellie, I got a question for you. Yeah, did you ever have occasion where you heard the bad guys talking about you over the phone in one of the recordings <laughs> that you listened to? And what did they say about Jews? Um, <laughs> I did. Um, so do they have a name for you. <laughs> well, the the guy Ellie the Jew Honig, right? Yeah, <laughs> the Gotti family called me in the newspapers. Called me Hotshot Honig, which. To me, is like, my friends call me worse than that on a daily basis. Like, that's not even necessarily that's bad. That's not bad. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, it's hilarious when you pick these guys up on the wire. 
Um, we got one where they were talking about our FBI agents and they were like, these guys are gentlemen. They're gentlemen. They don't, they, they surveil us, but they don't, they don't mess with our stuff. Um, they've said similar things about me on the wires, this guy Honig. They said, they said stuff like, you know, F that MF or whatever, but um, it's sort of par for the course. But I'll tell you what, what always, what cracked me up. When you listen to these guys, they understand the court system so well. So there was one great tape where they were talking about someone who had been convicted and he was going to appeal his case federally. And it, New York City is the second circuit. And so one guy goes, oh, that's the third circuit. They're, they're brutal. They're, they're, they're brutal on defendants. Another guy goes, no, 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 idiot. New York's the second circuit. New Jersey's the third circuit. I'm like, whoa, he's exactly right. There's the federal courts in Moscow. That's um, awesome. Yeah, so they know their stuff. You know, I'll tell you one other thing that what, that's uh, I'm reminded of it today. I'm an Eagles fan. And the Eagles Me lost too. this. Who, who was that? Vecchione. Oh, I'm nice. Yeah, yeah. Here you go. So the, the nice. Eagles uh, lost this. Ag Do you remember the playoff, the NFC championship game? They lost to Arizona. Like Larry Fitzgerald made a big catch at the end, yeah. like 08 yeah. or something. Yeah. So we did a case where um, they, would, they were heavy into sports betting and you would listen to these tapes. And Howie Santos, who I mentioned before, made a tape of all day long and they're watching a football game in the background and you hear, hear whoever's calling the game, Chris Collinsworth and John Madden. And I'm like, oh shit, this is that Cardinals game. I know they lose it. I got to listen to this again. You know, I got to relive the, my team losing the NFC Championship game like three years later. Well, is there anything on a wire where you've heard just ancillary whatever and maybe not for the case, but you've just pissed your pants laughing? Oh like, my God. It's one of the funniest things. Because you guys must go through hours and hours of tape. We do, we do. Um, yeah, um, I love that. I love, there's one where, um, I'll tell you two. One of them, um, there was a guy in the mob named, and they all called him Burger, okay? B, like him, like B-U-R-G-E-R. -E that was his nickname for, I don't remember what reason, but they all called him Burger to such an extent that they didn't know his real name. And so they're sitting there arguing over, wait, Burger, isn't he, is that Chris Reynolds? And like, no, that's not his name. He's, you know, he's, and it's like, they don't even know the guy's real name. They just know the poor fucking guy is Burger. <laughs> um, I love that one. I love the second circuit, third circuit one. Um, they talk a lot of shit about each other. I mean, these guys are like, forget about the real housewives. I mean, one guy walks out of the room and the other five are like, you know, immediately start shit talking him, right? He's, right. he's a rat, his mom's a rat. He's da, 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 da. Um, we, we got a guy confessing to a murder while eating a dirty water hot dog. So basically, Howie Santos and Todd LaBarca are walking down the street. Howie's wired up. They stop at one of those New York City vendors. They're like, you know, two dogs, mustard, relish, whatever. And, and you hear him like eating, slopping. And, um, and LaBarca's like, you know that boss heart thing? And Howie's like, yeah. And he's like, that was me and so-and-so. And I'm like, oh my God. Like, and we charged him. I mean, he's in jail. Todd LaBarca's in jail to this day. And for probably another, he ended up doing 25 years or something. He's probably got another 17, 18 years because of that little chat he had while eating a dirty water hot dog on a tape. And that was his last hot dog. <laughs> he probably had a couple others, but yeah. <laughs> well, How is yeah. it like for these guys in prison? What's it like for them in prison? How is it for them? Are they respected? Do people yeah. not well, like gangs and other organizations? Yeah, they like do. Imagine well, not caring now, or maybe they have status. I don't know. It's a great question. They do okay in prison. Um, they immediately find each other, right? They know the same way that I could say to you guys, I, I don't know, whatever your sport is. If, if I just said to you guys, uh, who's on the Chicago Bears? You could probably reel off three, four names. Who's on the Steelers? You could reel off three, four names. 
you could say to any of these guys, who's in, um, who's down at Fort Dix? And they would go, oh, this guy from the Bronx, this guy from the Lucchese, this guy from the whatever, right? And so as soon as they get into prison, that's when all the family lines break down and they're all, they're all together. They all have a pot. And it's not just made guys, it's guys from the neighborhood and associates. Um, they get protected pretty good. And they, um, you know, the big trick for them is trying to keep their rackets going while they're in prison and keep the money coming into the family. And a lot of them learn the hard way that even though you're told we're going to take care of you, we're going to take care of your family. When you go into business, I'll collect on your loan shark book, Mike. I'll collect on your loan shark book for like two months and then I'm going to take it for mine, you know? So a lot of guys end up getting screwed over when they're in prison. I will tell you one prison story. Um, I prosecuted in the, in that case I talked about where they buried the body in Massachusetts, a pair of brothers named Fred and Ty Gias, G-E-A-S, Greek guys. So again, could not get made, but psychopaths, killers, cold-blooded, maybe the only guys who really like were eager to kill. So we convicted them of a couple murders. They both got life sentences. Then I wake up one day a couple years ago and my phone's blowing up because Whitey Bulger has been murdered in prison, right? They transferred Whitey Bulger like across the country and they put him in a new prison and he was murdered the different media accounts said his eyes were gouged out but he was strangled whatever killed in prison by freddie g's my defendant and so all my friends were like isn't this crazy guy isn't this your defendant and my first reaction was like oh my god i can't believe my guy killed whitey bulger my second reaction was of course freddie because it's right. freddie yeah. and freddie was already doing life right. and he would much rather you know i'm sure they moved him up to supermax in colorado <laughs> but for him to be a to be a legend, to be a killer of Whitey Bulger, he'll, he'll take that deal any day of the week. You, you support the death penalty? No, not no. for the death penalty. Uh, um, and and, uh, and we, we used to have to go, whenever we charge a murder case, because technically the death penalty is still on the books federally, you had to send your paperwork down to D.C. And on that case, they almost made us go for the death penalty. To me, life sentence is... is, is I, I don't support the death penalty, but... The guy's already in for life. He starts killing people. I don't, you know, he doesn't leave you many options. I know. It, it, made, it, it, it puts that to the test. I agree. And the other question is, what about Jeffrey Epstein? Did he kill himself or was he? Was he... <laughs> I, I really don't know. I will tell you this. I know the unit he was in pretty well because they kept him where they keep a lot of the witnesses, the WITSEC floor of the MCC. The MCC is just in Manhattan. It's connected to the SDNY's building, physically connected. Um, it's a closely monitored floor. They should have surveillance of at least, not necessarily in the inside of the cell, but who's going in and out of the cell, the hallway. And the fact that that video is missing is unusual and it should exist and it doesn't. Um, so look, it's inexcusable that they lost Jeffrey Epstein. It's, it's, it's a Bill Barr failure. This is the number one highest priority, most endangered guy you have in the entire Bureau of Prisons. And you let that guy get killed. And by the way, not that many people get killed in the MCC. I know we've all seen Oz where three people are getting killed per episode. But the reality is it's pretty, I mean, I don't remember anyone being killed or killing themselves in, the, in that building in the eight years I was in the SDNY. I guess it could have happened, but I never heard of it. So they fell down. Bureau of Prisons, which is part of the Justice Department, fell down in the job for a guy that they should have known was about as high a priority as it gets. And if you guys want more, you would need to listen to Up Against the Mob coming up at <laughs> the end of the year, correct? Early 2021, Up Against the Mob. It's coming out from cafe.com. I talked to a former cooperator, a defense lawyer I did a trial against, uh, a couple of my old prosecutor buddies, an FBI agent who went undercover into the Gambino family. If you want to see the mob from all angles, we'll give it to you first person.
And if somebody want to follow you on uh, Twitter or something, you want to Ellie share? Honig. I'm the only Ellie Honig. E-L-I-E-H-O-N-I-G at Twitter, whatever the hell, you know, whatever. Like, what do you got? And Instagram. I'm uh, at Comic Mike V on all social media platforms, at Comic Mike V. And uh, my podcast, No Disrespect, uh, is available anywhere you get podcasts. And it's Thank really you. funny. You should, you, should, you should listen to it. Norm, anything? I just want to comment on how much less time I'm spending already on anything political, watching the news or anything. And I like, I don't know what's going to happen to these business enterprises that have been built on, on the back of Trump. I mean, just all the oxygen is about to leave the country. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's <laughs> like a boring great. Biden administration. Like, I'll check in once a day like I used to. <laughs> there'll still be stuff there'll be plenty to talk about we'll talk we got, i'll tell you this much we got plenty of legal cases coming up to talk about so we got the 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 jelaine maxwell right the epstein's person is coming up yeah. the trial of the officers who killed george floyd is coming up steve bannon you know there's there's always going to be legal i'm the first so. one that said maxwell didn't kill herself oh he's going to he didn't kill herself well she's alive so she definitely did not no but she's not going to kill herself. Oh, okay <laughs> <laughs> And this oh, is guys America podcast, guys. Ellie, thank you so much. That so was thank, thanks, thanks for having for me. Thanks uh, for having me. I love doing this podcast. I can't wait till the world gets back to normal. I'm coming in. I'm grabbing Harry Enton, and we're coming in. We're gonna come to the cellar. But Mike I, V, Mike V, you got a new fan. I'm a huge fan. I love your stuff. It's you, really man. funny. It My kids great, love your stuff too. It was great to meet you. It really thanks, was, man. man. I really. Yeah, I, I, I'm gonna pre. Is it pre-orderable yet on Amazon? Yes. Your book. If you go to Amazon.com. And just put in Ellie Honig, Hatchet Man, whatever. It comes right. You know the funniest thing? I watch it once. Like the day we announced it, you could see it slowly climbing the charts. Like not to top 10, but you know, it nice. went to like number 4,000, number 2,500. So and we, we will have the link in the description of this episode as well for awesome. the listeners. And But I, I want, I'm going to get the book, but then I expect, this, I expect you to sign it for me when you come in. He says that every time, but he never does. I like, I, I, I like having signed. Uh, Don't forget to charge copy. it to the to your campaign, not to your personal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, a it's a business expense, right, Ellie? Sure. Listen, <laughs> we can do an event. We can do an event at the cellar. I will come. You guys will buy a bunch of books. You charge, you know, you charge fifty bucks at the door. You get the book. I'll sign. You get an open mic. Have Mike put Mike up on the thing. Right, you're not thinking big. I know a guy owns a strip club. <laughs> i don't remember the name i don't remember the name of that club <laughs> let's do it let's do an event there all right okay all right guys nice to see sure. you bye thanks, thanks man. Man. i appreciate it, everyone